Good to be with you here this morning. Uh, we are, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open to the book of First Thessalonians. The cheat is in the New Testament, all the books that start with T are together. First, Second Thessalonians, First, Second Timothy, and Titus. Very convenient that way. So we're looking at, at a chapter five. Paul wrote this letter is one of his early letters that he wrote to a church and uh, dealing with several different issues. He's kind of addressed some of his main arguments in the letter. This is his his final portion, uh, the final chapter. Uh, and now he's getting to more practical matters. He's going to be talking tonight or today about life in the church. What does it mean to live as part of the church and to live as one people? It's some very practical matters that we're talking about. And so I'm going to read the entire section. Uh, it's not much. <laughs> Chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. And we'll dive right in. Word of God says, Therefore, encourage one another. Just uh, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all is the word of God. So we begin with this very first verse we're going to take a look at, verse 11, where we're called to encourage one another by reminding one another of the truth. I found that the truth, so long as it is good news, good truth, is a very fine antidote to fear. All right, so if any of you have kids, maybe you have a child who is afraid of the dark, Right, And the, the, the issue with being afraid of the dark is not necessarily the dark, as we all know. It's, of course, the monsters that live in the dark. Right? What's under the bed? What's in the closet? You know, it's, it's, it's the fear of the unknown because you can't see. Right? You're, you're, and so if you've ever had kids that struggle with that, or adults, let's be honest, the dark's pretty scary, right? But how do, how do we attack that, right? As parents, if you're trying to calm someone down, you say, hey, hey, let me just tell you the truth. Okay, there's nothing there. There's nothing you need to be afraid of. Right? We, we kind of combat fear sometimes by reminding people of the truth. And Paul is stating here, his, his point here, is we need to be able to encourage one another by reminding one another of the gospel truth. Here, that it begins with this very first word, therefore. He's kind of, our first verse today is kind of closing up. It's the conclusion of of. The previous section, what we talked about last week, verses 1 through 11. And Paul is talking about the return of Christ or the day of the Lord. It's this phrase that recurs several times in Scripture. right? All throughout the Old Testament, it can refer to multiple different times. Often it's when God says, enough. I'm going to show up in a big way. This is the day of the Lord. Sometimes it's when God was saying, I'm going to come in judgment or I'm going to come in salvation. The exodus, that day when God said enough. All right. That would have been a, a, a kind of kind of like a, a small preview of the day of the Lord. And different times the prophets would speak of that. But ultimately, that's all looking forward to the day of the Lord, meaning the day when Jesus returns. And Paul has been talking about that all throughout his letter. 
Jesus came in the flesh. He lived the perfect, sinless life. He perfectly obeyed God's law. I would think something that we cannot do. And then he died. He gave his life on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. Three days later, he rose again in glory. He was on the earth for about 40 days. All right. And then he ascended to heaven, but he will certainly return. And that is the great hope of scripture. When Jesus does come, he will come and it'll be a day of salvation and a day of judgment. Because it's the last day in history. It's when everything that's going on right now comes to a stop. And that is the end of history as we know it and the beginning of an age to come. And Jesus, as, as I prayed about, as we sung about, Jesus will be understood and we will be known to be king. Every eye will behold him. And those who believe in Jesus, who are part of God's people, who love him, man, that is a day of salvation. We'll talk about more of that in a second. But there's a warning in this past section that those who do not love the Lord, who do not know him, do not have faith in Christ, that's a bad day. It is a day of, of judgment. But he's reminding Christians who are, who, who at this time are, are struggling, are wrestling with persecution, are, are, are wrestling with, with, uh, with hope and, and everything that's going on in their lives. And Paul says, hey, remember the day of the Lord. Remember that Jesus is coming back and encourage one another. Christians encourage one another with this great truth. Jesus is returning. Be prepared. Look forward to it. One of the unique things he talked about is he says, hey, even though you die, even though you've seen saints die and we all face death, man, when Jesus comes back, there will be a resurrection, literally life from the dead. God will bring your mortal body back to life and it'll be immortal, just like Jesus was when Jesus came out of the tomb. He had a glorified body that would never die, that would never age, that would never be sick. And he says, that's a preview of what you're going to have. And so as Christians are facing their own mortality, as they're facing persecution and hardship and affliction and all manner of challenging, difficult things, he says, hey, remember the day of the Lord. Look forward to it. That's your hope. That's what you, that's what you hang your hat on. That's what you look forward to. And so that's, that's his message. Encourage one another. Build one another up. You're already doing it, but keep doing it. You may ask, well, how does this encourage? How does this message of the return of the Lord, how does that serve as an encouragement? Well, there's all manner of ways that that could be an encouragement. But I really just want to focus on, I'm going to choose one to kind of focus on today. And that's the reality that our lives, each one of us, our lives are kind of fading each and every day. I mentioned a football game that we're going to be having next week, um, but every year at the men's retreat, you may know that we have a football game. Men, if you need a reminder, that's the game that my team always loses, um, so plan ahead for next year to not be on my team. But every year we play football, and it's fun. This, I noticed a couple things this year. One, I noticed that there we had some younger guys come up, right? Some guys who are you know, in high school or just out of high school and that were, you know, I remember when they were in middle school and I was taller than them and it was awesome, but now they're taller than me and faster and stronger and we'll move on. But it was really fun to see them come out and play this year. That, the second thing I noticed is that, man, I'm starting to slow down. My elbows hurt. It's really hard. Man, why, why am I sore all that? It takes like days to recover from this game of football every year. The other thing I noticed, though, is that there are some men who were playing last year or the year before who were like, no, thank you. I think I'm going to sit this one out. Every year, a few of our older saints in the Lord are dropping off and not playing football anymore, right? 
Now, and they're like, you know what? I think I'll go on the hike. And that's probably a safe choice. Now, if Craig is leading the hike, you're better off playing football. Because you don't know how far he's going to go. But it comes, it comes to a place where we know, we're just kind of faced, like year after year, with the fact that our bodies are, are getting older. All of us. We're getting weaker. We're all getting closer to death with each passing year. That just becomes more apparent, doesn't it? Dave Brady um, was there at the men's retreat. He reminded me of a quote from Billy Graham, something to the effect of Billy Graham was saying, man, I I was prepared to die, but I wasn't prepared to get old. You ever think about that, Christian? You ever think like, man, if if you're a believer in Jesus, there's some comfort that, man, my, my soul is ready to meet the Lord. My spirit is ready. But man, when I look at myself getting wrinkles and my joints hurting and my back and I can't do things I used to, like, I'm not afraid of death, man. I'm, I'm afraid of dying and getting old. It's hard. It can give us anxiety, right? And there, we try to, I think, slow down, right? You know, we can dye our hair. We can go on a diet. We can change our ex, you know, we can get, adopt better habits. You know, the fact remains we can only slow down or hide the inevitable, but we can't stop it. And so what do you, what do you say, you know, as, as people, you know, are, are getting older? How do Christians encourage one another in this? Well, we can take heart because, you know, death and aging, they are certain. But man, the word of God is even more certain. There's a passage I'd like to read to you, Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8. It says, all flesh is grass. Its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. That's what we're compared to, folks. Grass. And if you're watching, it's fall. All the corn's getting mowed. All the grass is not growing anymore. It's turning brown. It says the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Man, I, I think I've preached this like three or four times, but it's this, this constant thing I think about that, man, there are certain truths that we just have to live with and deal with in this life that are hard. But you know what? God's truth is even like more true, right? More certain. You can count on it more than what your eyes can see, right? You are more, it is more certain that you will rise from your grave and that you might rise from your bed tomorrow. When we face hardship, affliction, aging, death, scary certainties, man, the word of God gives us comforting promises that are even more certain and more true. These are overcoming truths, unassailable truths, invincible truths, encouraging truths, like the promise that Christ, when he returns, will right every wrong. He'll put death to death. He'll conquer every enemy. And he'll give us a new body. Our failing bodies will be replaced with an eternal body. Our spirit and body will be joined together. That will be ready and fit for glory and eternal life. He says, hey, that, that's the truth. So yeah, while you're facing certainties and truths about our failing health. Um, uh, by the way, that's just one thing we struggle with. Apart from financial struggles and oppression and other kinds of struggles in this world. He goes, but this is just one struggle we deal with. He says, but in light of that, man, what is the resurrection? What is the, what is the, the return of Christ say to that? Encourage one another with that. So first of all, if you are here and you're facing health problems, young or old, you're facing old age, failing health, approaching death, know that Christ is your Savior. 
Christ is your Lord and you can live in hope and joy such as can be found nowhere else. I love the confounding wisdom of God. God, I think, likes to, 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 he shows us again and again, like his wisdom is true, but it doesn't make like sense to us. It's, it's, it's amazing to me that those who are in Christ, who are nearest to death, that should be the saddest time in our lives, right? The hardest time. But in Christ, it's amazing how saints can have the most peace. Those who are closest to death, but have Christ are some of those that can have the most peace in this life. That doesn't make any sense in the world. But in Christ, it can make sense. Clinging to the promises. Likewise, the opposite is also true. Sometimes the healthiest people who are youngest are those who can live in the most fear because they have the most to lose. They have, if they have no interest in Christ, you can have the least amount of peace. It's the confounding wisdom of God, the goodness of God. Second, church... I remember, the, the ultimate call here, what we see in this text, it says, therefore, encourage one another, build one another up. I want you, to, church, to take seriously God's call on your life to be an encourager. That's what we're talking about today. Life as a church. Life being living as one together. Now, some of you don't feel confident as an encourager. You're like, I, I'm more of a criticizer, Right? <laughs> That's my spiritual, there's no spiritual gift of, of discouragement, right? But we are all called to be an encourager. And if you ever know, like, some of you are really good at that. You just have a heart of compassion, and you're just really able to sympathize with people. Some of you, though, you struggle, you're like, I don't know what to say. When somebody is hurt, when somebody is weak, when somebody's struggling, if I had to go on a hospital visit and, and encourage somebody or go to a nursing home or go, I don't know what I would say. It, it scares you to even think about it. That's okay. You don't have to have the most profound insights. You don't have to be able to say you know, all the right things. That, you don't have to have a counseling degree or have all of this memorized to get it right, to be an encourager. I'm going to give you three things. I'm going to give you the cheat sheet, okay? If you, if you understand these three things and these implications, I guarantee you, you will have something to say to encourage just about anyone in any circumstance. If you understand the implications, you may want to write this down. The first is the cross of Christ. The fact that Jesus died for sins. Our sinless Savior died to ransom, to forgive ungodly sinners like you and me. So those who are wrestling with, I'm not worthy. I'm not going to, I've done too many bad things. Jesus is worthy. Jesus died for sinners. While we were yet sinners, Christ died. Not for good people, not for people who are halfway there, but for the ungodly. For those who struggle with shame, the cross of Christ. For those who struggle with not being accepted, the cross of Christ. For, for those who feel like, man, I'm so far from God, I want peace with God, the cross of Christ. For those who, who wrestle with assurance, the cross. We could go on and on and on. The second is the resurrection of Christ. That he rose again. Jesus rose from the grave so that we can walk in newness of life. Not just that we have forgiveness for past sins, but we have a new life with God. We are friends with God. We are beloved sons and daughters adopted into God's family. You are not a stranger. You're family. God's son, God's daughter. He has given you His Holy Spirit to come and live within you. And not only that, the, the, the resurrection confirms the truth of the gospel. 
The tomb was empty. This is trustworthy. We can have faith in that. So the, the resurrection of Christ, that we have eternal life, and that eternal life starts now. And thirdly is the return of Christ. We've been talking about all along. The end, it's going to end well in the end. And that, that, that's, that's the good news, right? And no matter how bad things look, no matter how hard life gets, no matter how much evil seems to reign, no matter how much everything falls apart, no matter how bleak it gets, we know how it ends. We know what's going to be. And so you can look somebody who, who, in the eyes, who is on their deathbed, who knows the Lord, and say, it's going to be okay. And that's not just fluff. That's not just make-believe. That's not wishful thinking. Christ died for your sins. Christ rose for you. And Christ is returning for you. And I guarantee you, if you understand those three things, you study, you give your heart and your life to those three things, and you understand what they mean, how they're applied, you will always have something ready to encourage. So study those three gospel truths and learn, be an encourager in those three things. We move on to verses 12 and 13, continuing to talk about life in the church, learning to live and, and be one people. And this time he's talking about the, really the idea that there should be peace between the leaders in the church and the congregation. Let me read again verses 12 and 13. It should be on the screen here. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly. In love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Paul is asking the congregation to respect, I'll say their spiritual leaders. Okay, he doesn't exactly address who specifically he's talking about. I'll, I'll come to that in a minute. But he's referring to leaders, those in the church. He says three things about them. He's speaking to the congregation. He says, brothers, respect those who firstly labor among you. All right. It's not just he's not just talking about, you know, have a job. He's that's a common phrase that Paul uses to describe gospel ministry or gospel mission. So that could refer to missionaries. It could refer to people who are preaching or teaching elders, deacons. It, it, that's kind of a broad phrase in, in Philippians. Uh, he calls really anybody who partners, you know, anybody in the church who's, who's part of mission and ministry as co-laborers, co-workers in the gospel. But it's talking about those who labor among you. The second thing is, he says, and those who are over you in the Lord. The Greek word here kind of has the idea of standing over, but also can mean caring for. So it's kind of a, a word that has a couple meanings here. And then he goes on to say, and those who admonish you. <clears throat> admonish is not a word we use a lot in common everyday language, but has the idea of reminding somebody of what their duty is. Okay, it's, 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 sometimes it's challenging if you, you know, if you have a, a boss at work who has an employee who has, has a job to do and they've kind of forgotten it, they haven't done it in a, in a timely manner, they haven't done it quite right, an admonishment would be to say, hey, you know, let me, let's come back around, let me help remind you what you're supposed to be doing and help you get on track. That's admonishment. Okay, it's, sometimes it involves warning, gently correcting, um, but that's what admonishing. So, when, when you put all three of those things together, laboring among you, referring to ministry, over you and the Lord having some sort of authority and admonishing you. The combination of those three traits indicates that um, while spiritual leaders may be in general, 
it's probably elders that are specifically in view here. That Paul is, is asking that the congregation in Thessalonica, and really in all churches, have a respect, have a high esteem and love for those who are elders or those who are leading them. Just, I want to pause real quick and just to speak very briefly about the offices in the church. There are two ongoing church offices that are recognized in the New Testament after the time of the apostles. And that is elders and deacons. There's a comment, there's uh, several different phrases in the New Testament that refer to elders. One is um, presbyterion, which is where you get the word presbytery. If you've ever heard of Presbyterian church, right? Um, and that is the word for elder, right? That's when you see a whole lot. A second word, sometimes you see in English, is overseer or bishop in some translation. That's episkopos, where you get episcopalian. You ever heard of Episcopalian church? Some, uh, and then another word is, these are used kind of infrequently as pastor or shepherd. Now there's some, there's some disagreement, you know, in, among denominations. Is there a difference between a, a bishop and an episcopos or an elder? And some churches want to say there's a, a greater hierarchy. Uh, but really, we believe, and a lot of scholars believe, that this is all the same person. These all describe in different language the same role. In Titus chapter 1, for example, um, Paul gives a, a charge to Titus. And he says, I want you to appoint elders in every town. And then like two verses later, he says, he's describing the qualifications for such elders. And he says, for an overseer, you know, must be above reproach. And he's, so like he's using these phrases interchangeably. So elders were installed, their purpose is very early. They were installed very early on in church history. After the apostles planted churches, such men were given authority after the apostles left to uphold and teach what the apostles were teaching. Today, that means you know, teaching the word of God and upholding sound doctrine and also guarding against false doctrine. They were tasked with that and still are. They are to serve as examples in good works, right? So they're given a place to say, hey, we all need to be worshiping the Lord, walking in obedience, and elders are among those who should be leading in that, being an example in good works. There's this idea of caring and watching over, pastoring, shepherding. That's where that word comes from, of, of watching over and being responsible for people's souls, leading the way and preaching the gospel as well. There's also an element of administrative oversight. There's this, there's talking about in First Timothy five, you know, elders who rule well, you know. So there's there's there seems to be some element of administrative oversight in the church. So we are an elder-led church. There's different churches do different uh, church government differently, but we are an elder-led church. We have a plurality of elders. So even though Pastor Tim and I are pastors, we are elders, and we call ourselves pastors because we're full-time elders. But we have three lay elders as, as well. So we're an elder team, and we, we see that's what Scripture has uh, for church government. I'll just briefly mention deacons as well. Um, deacons that are the other church office, they're those who minister by focusing on the physical or the material needs of the congregation. One of the key differences, though, is that this is not necessarily a teaching office. Some elders did do preaching or teaching, Philip and others in the New, in the New Testament did. But in the church, they're not responsible for teaching in the same way. And it's, not, it's not, generally speaking, a ruling um, role. But the Greek word for deacon comes from the Greek word diakonos, which means servant. So this doesn't degrade the office, but it does distinguish its purpose. These are to serve the body, particularly in material needs.
And the vital ministry of deacons makes sure that God's family is cared for well, that you, and some of you experience this, you've been cared for well, not just in preaching and teaching and prayer, but also your physical needs have been met. You've been cared for in tangible ways. This also allows elders to focus on their unique calling as well. That was free, if you just wanted to know about our church polity. But returning to our text, Paul was keen to make sure that the Christians in Thessalonica and beyond really respected their spiritual leaders, particularly, it seems, their elders. To esteem them highly in love because of their work. Now, why did Paul write this? Maybe they were doing really well at it. There's a couple times where Paul is just reminding them, he says, hey, you're doing great at this, just keep doing it. It may be that there was some friction in the church, though. I mean, at the end of this section, one of the things that Paul says is, be at peace among yourselves. So there's a good chance the reason why Paul uh, said this is because there wasn't peace between the elders or the church leadership in general and the congregation. It's possible there was some, from some friction. Pastor Kim, Tim came into my office this week. And I was discussing with him how awkward it is to preach a text like this sometimes, right? It's without sounding self-serving, you know. God's word says, uh, honor your, and respect your elders. And I'm, and I'm an elder. It, it just seems, it's, it's, I wrestled with it. And Tim reminded me, he's like, well, hey, just remember, it's not just you. We're a plurality, but we have many elders, right? Several elders, you know, and, you know, that was encouraging, right? Not just myself, but other men that we, that labor alongside me who, who serve God and serve you, overseeing, admonishing, praying, building you up. But beyond that, we preach it because that's what Scripture teaches us, congregation, that we are to live in peace as a congregation, as a body, but also in terms of leadership and congregation. Guys, I'm, I'm, th- I'm so thankful for Living Hope Church because I, I don't have to admonish in this. I, I can tell you, the elders, we, we feel so loved and supported and appreciated, the leadership um, and I can tell you, I've been in churches where, as, as a member and as a leader, where, where, where there was just so much criticism and scrutiny and, and uh, against leadership. I can tell you, it's not fun and it's not healthy. You know, because elders have a responsibility to God. To love people in the congregation, to pray for them, to preach faithfully, to build them up, to encourage. And it's hard when for an elder when they feel like, the person that, they, you know, to, to love someone when they don't feel loved. As an analogy, I'm going to say this. It's not the same thing, but as an analogy, parents, you got to love your kids, don't you? You got to provide for them. You got to protect them. You got to raise them. There's sometimes you're like, I don't even like you. You're mean to me. <laughs> right? But you can't just give up. Because God has called you to be a parent. And you can't just say, all right, I quit. Just do it yourself, right? It, but you know what? Some, I, and sometimes you're like, you know what? I have to love you, but you are not making it easy. <laughs> As an analogy, you know, Paul is encouraging. He says, hey, these men are called by God to serve you, to teach you, to build you up, to do hard things like admonish you, right? To pray for you, to guard you, to watch over your souls. Don't make it hard for them. Hebrews 13, 17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. 
But as I, as I said before, I'm, I'm so thankful for, for all of you. And I, I, Paul says a couple times in his letter, he doesn't have to like warn them. He just says, hey, you're already doing this. Just keep it up. And I'm just going to echo Paul says, congregation, I think you're doing really well with this. And so I encourage you just to continue in it in the Lord. We move on to our last section here. Be patient with one another. He writes in verse 14, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle and encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. Remember, we're talking about what it is to live as a church, to live in harmony, to live as one people. And I want you to notice as we go into verse 12 that, that Paul has kind of switched his tone in the previous verse when he's saying, you know, respect those who, who are over you in the Lord. He says, we ask you. He's very gentle, right? It's not a harsh demand. He's not saying, I demand your respect. He's, it's a very gentle tone. Here, he brings more of an imperative. Paul takes a firmer tone. He says, we urge you, brothers. We urge you to do this. There's a couple observations I want to make. First of all, Paul is talking to all the Thessalonian Christians and to us about the responsibility we have towards one another to encourage and to challenge one another to grow in Christ. It's important for us to grasp this, right? That church right now, you are a people. If you're in Christ, you have a responsibility. I mentioned it earlier to encourage one another, to watch over one another, to challenge one another in the Lord. A church is not a group of people who all come to listen to the same preacher, to absorb the same product. Okay, then you would be no different than people who go to the theater to see the same movie or people who go to a restaurant to eat at the same place. That's not what our organization, your organization is. It's not a gathering of consumers. It's a family. A family who holds the same values, the same Lord, the same love, one faith, one spirit, one baptism, who take responsibility for one another. That's what God calls us to, to encourage one another, to watch over one another. So discipleship, yes, it is a unique responsibility, a special responsibility of elders, deacons, and leaders in, in various places. Right? Elders are to lead in a way. They have a unique calling to teach. However, you too, Christians, to use this phrase, you're your brother's keeper. You're your sister's keeper. You're responsible to love one another. To seek their well-being, to care for them, to pray for them, to encourage them, to minister the word to them, to even have a challenging word of correction to one another. That is not all like, I don't let the pastor do that. That's Some of it, yes, but it's also you as well. All of this, though, is to be done in a spirit of love and humility, seeking the good of one another. Do not ignore this responsibility. You have a responsibility. Don't outsource it. To the calling of the elders. We should all do this for one another. So that's the first observation, right? That we all have this responsibility to watch and love and encourage and challenge one another. The secondly, though, is to observe that we are to build up people and meet them where they are. That not everybody is in the same place. Not every, not every Christian is in the same place in life. The same place in maturity, the same place in faith, that everyone has different struggles, different sins, different problems, different gifts, and we can't all treat people exactly the same. 
But we have to treat people as individuals in unique situations. And that's just wisdom. There's an old saying, right? If you have, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Right? You're like, I've got one mode, one solution, and I'm going to use this for everything. Right? That's not how it works. Right? For example, some of us like to think of ourselves as, well, I'm just direct. I'm just blunt. I'm just going to tell you like it is. And maybe because that's how you like to be talked to, right? You just want it straight. And you think, well, that's how I'm going to talk to everybody. I'm just going to tell it like it is. For some people, that'll work. For others, that'll be incredibly insensitive and harmful. If you have, uh, if you have, if any of you have uh, a, a kid or more than one kid, you know that they're not all the same. And I've been continually learning that I can't just like dad one way, that I have to like think about it differently. I have one kid that I can say, all right, it's time to clean your room. And she will, I'll give that part away. We'll say like, no, and I'll do this. Okay. And that's like, well, it worked. But there's other kids. That's not going to work at all. Okay, some kids you have to say, tell you what, clean your room and afterwards we'll get a slushy or we'll go to Rudders and get something. Okay, and they need encouragement, they need motivation, a goal, something. For another kid, it may be like, okay, clean your room. I want you to tell me why. I need four reasons. Give me a logical reason why I'm gonna, I need to clean my room. And you have to explain. You can't just say do it. They need to understand why it's necessary for life and godliness. Okay? Why does this have to be done? Okay. And you have to sit down and have the conversation. And when they understand it, then they'll do it. Then there's the other kid. That has no use for logic or reason. And you just have to like say, do it. Do it now. Or I will take away all the screens. I will lock your door. I will lock you in your room. And you just have to start like threatening, right? Until finally they'll do it. But you know, you can't do the same thing with everyone, right? And I'm, and you know what? And sometimes we do that. Sometimes you're like, all right, I've got my relational tool. Today I'm going to be mean, dad. Everybody clean your room or else. Don't look at me like that. You've done it too. Sometimes the hammer works. But honestly, right, we, we joke, but we can't treat everyone the same way and expect the same outcome. We have to be wise. We have to be sensitive. We have to be understanding of where people are at if we're truly going to build them up, if we're truly going to encourage them. So here Paul reminds us that we have a responsibility to build one another up. To be mindful that different people have different needs. So don't just bring a hammer. <laughs> bring the right relational tool. And Paul just mentions three specific cases. The first are the idle. I-D-E-L-E. I, I should have tried to spell it because I just messed it up. You see it. The idle. These are, these are saints, these are people in the congregation who are not moving forward in life or in faith. Just like a car is idling, it's, it's getting cold out, you know, you turn your car on, and, and there's a reason to idle, to warm it up, to get the engine running, right? And that's fine for a while, but you know, a car that is idling is running, the engine is running, but it's not going anywhere. 
And you can't stay that way for long, okay? If you leave your car idling too long, it's not good. It's all it's doing at that point is just wasting gas and polluting. In the same way, sometimes there are people in church who the engine's running, but they ain't going anywhere. And that's not healthy. This describes a believer who won't work, like physically, like won't work a job or won't provide for his family or, or, or won't just isn't productive, who won't serve, who maybe is lazy in life or in faith. Or another way you can think about this is just somebody who's living an unruly, undisciplined life. Just they're like being tossed to and fro by the winds of life. They're not stable in their life. For these people, admonishment is called for. How do you encourage this person? Paul says by the Holy Spirit that admonishment is what's called for. To warn them firmly. Hey, let me remind you of what you're supposed to be doing. With gentleness and love. But to to, to remind them, to warn them like this is not going to lead you in a good place. This is not healthy. To remind people that this behavior leads to bad ends. That Christ has not called us to live idle lives. Right? And some people just need to be told, like firmly, like, I love you, you need to get a job. I love you, you need to come back to church. You've been away for too long. I love you. You need to step up in your family life and love your spouse better. Or do a better job with your children, you're kind of letting them go. Or hey, we have needs in this, in this church, in this congregation, and you are capable and you are gifted. We need your help. There are times when it just needs to be like that. And you know what? I'm going to be honest with myself. I kind of like that. Like that's my, some of you, that's a real struggle. Like I like receiving that way. Like I like going to church and somebody p- puts the Bible in front of them and then kicks me in the pants with the word of God. Like I, I can, yeah, let's do it. Like some of us respond well to that. And that's so when there are people who are in that position who are capable but not active, admonishment is the right tool. Then there are those who are faint hearted though. This describes saints who have really great sorrow or anxiety or are lacking in courage or lacking self-confidence. They, they have, they have something they need to do. They need to step up. They need to, but they're just weighed down with fear, worry, emotional struggles, lacking self-confidence. They're struggling in their spirit. And it would be wrong to admonish us people. No! Snap out of it. That would be unloving. It would not be helpful at all. It might make you feel better because I'm just going to just I'm just going to be blunt and tell it like it is. But that is not what God calls us to. Rather, encouragement is called for. Literally, lending courage, giving strength, speaking words of comfort. Sometimes this just means that you're a shoulder to cry on if they're if they're in a place where they're struggling. Weep with those who weep. Don't despise them or judge them, but rather bear with them, build them up, give them encouragement. You can do this. You can do this. God's spirit is working within you. You are gifted. You can do this. Then there's the weak. These are saints who have some material or physical limitation. They have maybe a disability, for for instance, like an actual physical disability. Or maybe it's some other material loss or weakness or obstacle. They're lacking financial security. There's some other obstacle that makes life uniquely difficult for them. You wouldn't say, once again, you wouldn't admonish them. 
Scripture says you help them. In such a case, we're, you know, we're using the analogy, we are the body of Christ. That member is almost like a wounded or like a broken arm, right? When you, if you have a broken arm, you care, you put it in a sling, you care for it, you protect it, you help. You're the rest of your body comes around to compensate. In the same way, when we have somebody in our congregation who is, who's, who's weak in this way, who, they need help. So that may mean physical help, driving them to appointments, to, you know, helping out with home chores, helping with benevolence. And this way we bear one another's burdens. And, and, and by the way, and Paul could list a whole lot of other examples. He lists these three because they were probably particular to the church he's writing to at the time. But all of these needs are true in our church in some way. Church. Let's be the church to one another. Loving in appropriate ways that meets people where they're at. Sometimes that's a firm word of warning. Other times it's a shoulder to cry on. Other times it's a few hours of, of your time to serve a brother or sister in Christ who just needs your help. But use the right relational tool. Guys, that's what God calls you to. Don't outsource that. That's not just elders and deacons. That's all of us. That's what it is to, to live life as the church and be one together. But no matter what our situation is, no matter where we find ourselves, no matter what we're dealing with, when we meet somebody in the church who has a need, the one relational tool, if I want to call it that, that we should always employ is patience. He says, be patient with them all. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're correcting someone, encouraging them, somebody who's weak, somebody, if, if they're a, a believer or not a believer, they're, they're wrestling with faith, or whatever it might be. The one thing God is always calling us to, it's probably the hardest, right, is patience. Is anyone good at patience? I'm, I'm not. <laughs> I struggle with it. You may notice that people take a long time to change. Did you notice that? Bad habits, man, they get they, they, they form real quickly. Fixing those bad habits, changing for the better, that is a long and arduous process. And if we're in, impatient, oh, we just want people to change right now. Stop immediately. Stop what you're doing and turn around. And we want things to change right away. Even when we're sick and we pray, we want people to be healed immediately. Things don't always work that way. Sometimes they're long. In our lives, sins multiply like weeds. They're fast and destructive, but graces grow like trees. Slow, steady, and firm. But the key thing there is slow. Patience requires a few things if we're going to be patient. It requires humility. It first of all recognizes that as a church, when, we, when there's other people that we're dealing with who are in different places... We have to recognize that we have no ability to change somebody. When you preach the gospel, when you share those three gospel truths I mentioned earlier, the cross, the resurrection, the return of Christ, that's good news, that's good medicine. But you can't change somebody's mind. You can't change their heart. You can't change their behaviors. Only God can do that. It requires humility. You can't come in and say, all right, I've got my responsibility to be an encourager. I'm going to fix people. No, no, you need to abandon that. Be humble. You need to have understanding, as I mentioned, that people don't change quickly. Oftentimes, God is content to let things move slowly. Patience requires perseverance. That you don't give up on people. And this is the hard thing. 
It's like, man, I came around and I told you the truth and you just didn't listen. Why are you still doing this? People have to be told again and again and again. And you have to be patient because people are going to stumble. People are going to fall. They're not going to get it. Perseverance means that you don't just come along and encourage somebody one time and say, you didn't listen? Ah, forget about it. No, we persevere with people. It requires patience, especially when setbacks occur. And lastly, guys, it requires faith. I think it's in Philippians. I love that passage. It says, what God began, he will bring to completion. Man, God is going to sanctify his saints. God is going to glorify. God is going to heal and forgive. At the end of the day, we just have to trust his promises. God, trust that God is working in each and every one of us in ways that we can't see. And we're all at different places in God's sanctification of us. And we're going to encourage one another and trust the process. Trust that God's will will be done. And so in conclusion, as we read this, this letter, this section, in this way God calls all of us to be encouragers, to live as the church, to live as one people. And so I want to call you, by God's word, to make it your habit to speak gospel truths to one another. Let the cross the resurrection, the return of Christ to be in your heart, in your mind, and on your tongue to speak to every need. Respect your leaders. And in doing so, encourage them as they lead you in the Lord. I call you to take up the responsibility you have for one another. And that happens, that happens in the hallway. It doesn't happen just when you're here. It happens in the hallways. It happens through phone calls, through sharing meals. It happens in core groups, students. It happens in life groups, in men's and women's accountability groups, and sharing time together, sharpening one another, challenging, loving, meeting needs. Take up your responsibility. Meet people where they are. Love and encourage them in appropriate needs, ways as fits the need. And finally, be patient with one another as Christ is patient with you. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you, God, that you are good. We thank that you are patient with us. Lord, thank you that you equip us. You don't just simply save us and forgive us, but Lord, you equip us, you call us to live as your family. That you, God, are our Father, and we are brothers and sisters who bear one another, bear one another's burdens. So, Lord, I pray that we would experience that, God. I pray as a church that we would be a place, Lord, yeah, where we hear the truth and we live it and we are encouraged, but we are also experiencing the joy of being the part of the family of God. Here and now, Lord, not just in eternity, but, Lord, a little taste of heaven here and now. So, Lord, I pray that we would be encouragers by your spirit, according to your word. God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.